Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. I, uh, oh, uh, correction. Um, this show is a show that does end. In fact, this is the final episode. That's right, this is the final episode of Paradox of Civility. So for those of you joining this podcast for the very first time, um, this is going to be a little uh, weird and confusing for you, and you're a little late. But you know what? Let me accommodate you because I was raised with manners. So this is a podcast where I, Roy Koshi, revisited an online radio show that I produced and hosted back in 2012 and 2013 called The Hate Project. It was broadcast over the internet, uh, primarily over a platform called TalkShoe.com. And uh, the mission of The Hate Project was for me to explore why people hate Um and my methodology in doing so was allowing actual hate mongers, actual racists, actual bigots, actual white nationalists to call in so that I could understand where they were coming from. I allowed them to call in anonymously so that they could talk freely without the worry of their identity being exposed, thereby having to protect themselves. So, and, it, and really like my mission here was to learn more about how they came to hate and why hatred of any other group of people exists, actually. So, um, there were 36 episodes of The Hate Project, and there are now 36 episodes of this podcast, Paradox of Civility. Uh, the Hate Project ended on September 9th, 2013. This podcast, Paradox of Civility, is ending on September 30th. 2019. Um, I was not able to synchronize those ending dates because I'm a busy man. What do you want from me? Um, so, um, anyways, uh, this is uh, epilogue, basically a final episode where I just sort of reflect a little bit on this experiment and I reflect on my reflection of this experiment. Uh, very, very layered, very meta. On the final episode of The Hate Project, which I put in unedited in episode 35 of this podcast, Paradox of Civility, um, at the very end, back in 2013, I made this little speech about how I hope this project was a way for people to reflect on why they really hate, reflect on why they see other groups of people as their enemy, meaning especially marginal groups of people out there. Why are they your enemy? And, um, you know, I was mainly directing this speech towards the white nationalist, white supremacists who called in, as well as a lot of the trolls in the chat room that interacted with me throughout the show. TalkShoe had that format of taking live calls and also the live chat room where you could see people spewing out garbage in real time. Um, so for me, um, back then in 2012, 2013, uh, Barack Obama our first African-American president. It was still in office. And these groups and these ideas were considered fringe ideas. Now, um, I'm not so naive to, to not understand that a lot of racist um, ideologies have been woven into American life, American institutions, 
throughout American history. Um, so, you know, and several people have commented on this. And in fact, uh, Karina Luray Olson even mentioned this about how immigration has been a great way to recruit white nationalists into the movement. Uh, immigration has been a great way of othering people just in mainstream America way before Donald Trump. He just uh, jumped on that and just took it to another level, basically. And he emboldened people to take off the mask of respectability around the discussion of immigration and just be openly hateful. And he's appointed a lot of, um, you know, people with white nationalist ideologies. Um, Stephen Miller would be one of those folks. Um, you know, we call them collaborators back in the day. Not in my day. I wasn't alive during World War II, but he's a Jewish collaborator. Ken Cuccinelli. Um, not even one of the good whites. Cuccinelli. Um, you know, basically, um, when challenged about immigration and challenged about the promise of allowing people from uh, other countries, suffering in other countries to come here, uh, you know, he mentioned that it was... He kind of basically said it was okay when those countries were European countries. Um... I don't know why I'm qualifying it. That's basically what he said. So um, it's not such an oddity, though. Um, but like what I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that um, in years past, uh, still the people that I was talking to were a lot more on the fringes. There were a lot more oddities like going to a carnival and seeing somebody in a cage. And wow, I wish I wish that was the case today because I just feel like a lot of these guys, maybe not these individuals who called in, but um, a lot of hate is being legitimized out there and a lot of hate groups are a lot more emboldened. I mean, it's almost every month and a few times at that every month that we're seeing some sort of a march from a right-wing goon squad. They're doing some sort of a stunt. They're having some sort of a rally with the intention of going into a predominantly liberal city and uh, imposing their will on the citizens there. Now, there are groups that oppose them and have opposed them, again, long before Donald Trump, long before uh, they've been emboldened, and they've been characterized as Antifa groups. Now, there are some people, like, they actually are there for battle, they are there to oppose them, but the, the phrase Antifa has just been applied to large swaths of people who oppose neo-Nazis, white nationalists, white nationalist adjacent people like Patriot Prayer and the Proud Boys marching through their town and polluting it with their horrid, outdated ideas. And uh, unfortunately, the media has done something. The American media has managed to, in their craven desire for ratings, for maintaining as many customers as they can because it's a for-profit system that we have here, uh, they have decided to, um, you know, legitimize a lot of these right-wing goon squads with the threat of Antifa. Now, the right-wing ecosystem, ecosphere, has made up this Antifa threat. Like, these are the real Nazis. They're against free speech. And so many people in the media, Jake Tapper, I'm looking at you, um, have run with this. And then also you, you um, have that on top of the mainstream media, the liberal media, you know, the failing, you know, New York Times that Donald Trump uh, constantly talks about. Um, they, these supposedly liberal publications have been doing puff pieces on Trump voters. And even recently, um, 
there was uh, it was revealed that a writer I don't remember her name but she was using the same exact sources and presenting them as swing voters when in fact these exact people were identified as Trump voters in previous articles they're just recycling people now but just putting a different label on them uh, that's actually false and what am I getting off on here um, I'm not getting off right now uh, I'm keeping it in my pants as I rec record this folks um, no um, I'm just talking about normalization and the idea of having a dialogue with people from hate groups or people with a hateful ideology or people who see other groups of people as their enemy that must be destroyed back then I thought that um, while I wasn't arrogant enough to think that I could change people um, I thought that I would at least like cause them to reflect cause them to think cause, cause them to kind of give pause to why they hate you know and just take a moment to reflect um, now I just don't believe in that anymore. I actually think everyone who belongs to a fucking hate group should be exterminated. Really, they should be treated like ISIS. They should be treated like a terrorist cell. And I feel, you know, the, the one thing that, uh, makes me feel bad about that is, you know, somebody like Karina Lure Olson, who you heard on previous episodes of this podcast, um, go check those out. Um, she's a former white nationalist and she's great. She was a very illuminating voice. And also, like, uh, people like Christian Piccioloni, um, who, and Angela King, they created Life After Hate. I mean, they're doing good work, but, I mean, this is my dilemma. This is how I feel about this. I don't know if it's worth it for, like, the three to five good people that come out of the white nationalist movement, uh, that it's worth, like, you know, not treating them like they're fucking terrorists and just blowing up their cells, you know? I don't know. Maybe if you vote for me for president, I might do that. Koshi 2020. Um, also, I do want to I want to speak on something as well. The people who leave white nationalism in general, it's not because somebody on the outside was nice to them. Typically, you know, they might have an interaction with somebody and they were nice. Like, oh, this Muslim dude was didn't want to punch. You didn't want to like, you know, fucking impose Sharia law on me or whatever. Um, another term that's been twisted in our mainstream here. But um Often, and you can hear this in the Karina Luray uh, interviews that I did in previous episodes, um, you know, what they encounter is corruption within their own movement, bad behavior, harassment uh, within their own movement towards them, and they are disillusioned by the people in the movement. Um, it's not from everybody being nice to them. So um, for any about there, any liberal, any like, especially white liberals who complain about like Antifa being aggressive towards these people or people boycotting them or, you know, if you support, like if, if they have a white nationalist on, we'd boycott the platform that put them on. Bunch of bullshit. You know, because they always make this argument that, well, you know, if you're mean to them, they're not, you know, they're just going to be more Nazi-ish. And it's like, that's not, that's going to keep happening no matter how nice or mean you are to them. And also, if they leave, it's because something happens to them concretely in the movement. That's how that works. And then also, um, another point here that I want to talk about is, if you've been listening to this uh, podcast every episode, uh, there was a regular Klansman named Dra Dragon1488 who called in quite often. There was a neo-Nazi named Edward McBride who called in. And there was a guy named Kennewick Man who called in a few times. And these three guys, not stupid people, 
They don't fit that stereotype of like the dumb redneck, like, oh, I don't like naggers or cactus. You know, they didn't do that. They actually were very smart people. And in fact, uh, there were times with all these people that they sometimes sounded like fucking Noam Chomsky or Cornell West even in breaking down how race and class intersect and how the government and how institutions in America are incentivized to keep people separate, to teach people to hate each other and to, you know, silo people into different groups so they don't, they don't unite and see how the powers that be are fucking them. They would articulate this stuff very well, these uh, members of hate groups. And so I would say, yes, I agree with you. So why are you in this group? Why do you decide to, you know, follow this like ideology that's clearly just been debunked? And, um, you know, they would come back with like, well, I just love my own race, blah, 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 blah. You know, I just love my own race, that whole thing. And denying that plausible denial, you know, they would sort of do that thing of, um, well, I'm not motivated by hatred. I'm motivated by love of my own race. They do that thing. And there was an opportunity that they would always take every time I challenged them on this point. But I also, upon reflection, I think that the destructive aspects of a capitalist, patriarchal, white supremacist structure the destructive policies, the destructive choices in regards to um, housing, in regards to employment, in regards to even clean water and food that one can digest, um, never affected these guys. They can observe it, and to them it's just an abstract idea of like, yes, of course that's what's happening. And they were again able to play both the sort of rebel and also enjoy the status quo. And here's what I mean by that. They can kind of play that rebel role of being like, I'm going to call out the U.S. government. And yeah, I'm going to call out that this government's corrupt and it's dividing us. See, I'm actually like acknowledging that. So I'm not so stupid. But they were enjoying the fruits of that government, of these institutions that have maintained this white supremacist, patriarchal, capitalistic structure. They're not affected by it. They know that they benefit from this. So that's why, in fact, I don't know if they knew this. I don't know if they reflected on this in the intervening years. Um, I don't know if they were trying to tell me this back then. I wish I had had this insight back then, but these folks understand that the system is rigged against certain groups of people. They understand that whatever oppressions, whatever, uh, you know, sort of ways in which the government fucks people, it fucks non-cis-het white male people a lot harder than cis-het white males, Christian white males. And um, they know this, and it's even worse of like, not only am I not going to do anything about it in my own life, but I'm just going to join the, the, I'm just actually going to continue to enable it. I'm going to join the forces of evil. Yeah, I'm just going to stay in it. Uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, I understand it's wrong. Um, so it's also, this kind of goes against this idea, and we keep hearing this when we hear of a white supremacist uh, mass shooter. Mental illness. Oh, this person committed this crime. They're mentally ill. This fucking, like, racist cunt, Heather Patton, she's a costumer, uh, costume designer, uh, wardrobe person who works in Hollywood, California on many major TV shows, uh, liberal Hollywood. 
Um, I don't know if she was like actual like how much authority she had, but she did various shows and she was caught on camera talking about how she wanted to kill the all the N words and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, there's video about that. So many people reacted that she was mentally ill and, oh, she needs help. I don't think these people need help. And, and I'm sick of hearing mental illness be conflated with racism. I know that racism is probably not a normal way to think, but guess what? Pro what is normal thinking anyway? We're all, we're all socialized. We're all brainwashed in some way. You know, what does that mean? So, I mean... And I, I'm saying this also like as somebody who's had jobs where I've worked with uh, groups of people who held mental illness. And I have a lot of friends who had mental illness. They're not fucking racist over it. They're not out trying to kill people. But it's something that's applied to people who, um, mainly white people, when they act racist and they do something violent. Uh, whether it's physically violent or verbally violent. It's an excuse. And so, um, again, I kind of thought that even back then in 2012, 2013, that this is a form of like some sort of uh, fucked up kink in your brain that's making you do this. I'm sure in some cases it is, but for the most part, um, these people know that they can get away with it. Yeah, they might lose their job and they might, you know, people might like, you know, dog them online, but it keeps happening over and over again, you know? So why does it keep happening over and over again? I think these people are taught this stuff, certainly. It is brainwashing, but it's not fucking mental illness. It's not mental illness, and at some point you're an adult and you're making a choice, and if you, it, it, we had the ability to question what we're taught, by the way. That's what drives me up the wall about that fucking argument. And also, speaking about education in general, another insight that I had about this show, The Hate Project, was um, when Dragon, uh, throughout the run of it he would challenge me about like you know name one you know black person that's contributed anything of value to white western society and uh, you know in the moment there were times where i was just like uh, uh you know bring up the usual people like martin luther king and then i'd bring up some of like the more famous stories about like you know the, a black man inventing the traffic light and things like that but something that this spurred me to do in uh, episodes going forth, and you heard this if you've been listening to this podcast, is that I had to look up black inventors. I had to look up like black, um, you know, innovators, black people that have been unsung and contributing to the fabric of, you know, innovation in America and in the West. And um, there was even a point where, um, well, first of all, let me let me talk about this. Um, our education system has really failed um, all of us in teaching about the contr contributions of black Americans and people of color in general, because with black history, it's slavery, then Martin Luther King, and then probably some shit about jazz. I don't know, you know, and so this country has failed us on that. And, um, you know, the other thing is that at one point, uh, Naj Radio, the African-American sports host who called in constantly, he basically told me that, like, I'm kind of cheapening myself and lowering myself by bringing up these facts and, you know, uh, figures to these racists who are not going to be swayed by me bringing up, like, the first person who, you know, like, who did uh, cataract surgery, you know, being a black woman. And it's true, because every time I brought it up, you know, Dragon, uh, other people would say, like, oh, well, of course there's exceptions. You know, there's exceptions to every rule. That was his excuse. That was his little parachute out of that uh, conversation. You bring up, like, you know, millions of exceptions, basically. It kind of no longer is a rule. But it's like, again, you know the truth. You have your talking points to swat down, like, 
somebody challenging you on your uh, hateful ideology. So at some point you're making a fucking choice. Um, so on this podcast, you know, I wonder now speaking about dragon at times, he invited me to rallies at times. He sort of, there were moments where I think he was trying to reach out to like, maybe even meet me. And, um, I wonder what would have happened if I had taken him up on that offer. I was just afraid to do that, you know. First of all, I was super broke at the time, so I wasn't going to spend hundreds of dollars to go travel somewhere. Um, and then also, um, I was a little afraid to do that, you know. Um, I never revealed my identity, my ethnicity, especially during the talk shoe shows. And um, so I wonder if I had been more open about my name, my ethnicity, and, you know, my willingness to, like, actually show my face and meet with these people, what would have happened? I wonder if these people, um, as, you know, we were talking and, you know, as I tried to do, I tried to interact in a humorous manner. I tried to be funny. I tried to make the show entertaining. I believe in, I believe the audience deserves to be entertained, even if there's an educational aspect to the show. Um... I wonder how that would have played out had I been more open about my own ethnicity. Uh, maybe, and I'm and I'm saying this because of this documentary I watched by a woman named Dia Khan. It's called White Right Meeting the Enemy, where she actually goes and interviews in person white nationalists who belong to actual white nationalist groups. And... Um, in that documentary, there are a couple people who express their desire to leave the group, and one of them even says that it's because of her, because he met her, and uh, he, you know, didn't feel right about, like, killing this person that he knows who he found to be a pleasant person, or deporting this person, or anything like that. So, um, was that a missed opportunity? I don't know. Um, I really don't know. Because maybe, like, if I did meet them, they wouldn't have hidden, like, if you belong to a hate group, You've already bought in, so you're probably not going to hide, like, how you really feel. I don't know. Um, but on that, like, you know, I wonder, instead of, like, killing everybody who belongs in a hate group, because several people brought this up. Peachy Aloni of Life After Hate has brought this up. Um, and Karina Lure Olson also brought this up. A lot of people are scared to leave. And so they need some help leaving, you know. They need um, somebody like Karina or Christian to help them leave the group. Now, um, here's maybe a better solution. Maybe we should kill the leaders only because the leaders are the ones who are profiting off of these young, predominantly young males, and um, they're manipulating them for their own ends. They're using these young males basically like as a funding source, uh, and then they don't do much for them in return beyond giving them an empty ideology, uh, a violent, bloody, genocidal but ultimately empty and wrong ideology. So uh, maybe that's really the solution. You kill the leaders of these movements. You kill the people with power. I don't know. Or get rid of them somehow. I don't want to be, I don't want to get in trouble with this fucking podcast. I'm not, it's not a call to action. Disclaimer, nothing's a call to action here. I'm just reflecting. Um, something else that... Um, I want to mention is that back then in 2012 to 2013, I was entering into this project with the assumption that people in the clan and people in skinhead groups were all just lower class people from broken homes. And I even expressed that at times on the hate project, 
But then, you know, Dragon1488 said that he worked for a major corporation that I would know the name of. And he said that he had a lot of power and he would be harder on black employees and fire black employees a lot easier than uh, white employees. And um, I really regret letting him be anonymous about that. I really do. Because, again, people's lives get affected. But that's another thing that needs to be completely debunked in this country. Uh, The racism, the prejudice, the hate, um, all this stuff, it does not just exist in in a trailer park. I'm going to post a couple articles, one of them about John Tanton, who was a major architect of the modern anti-immigrant movement, and we're seeing a lot of his, uh, the mission that he set out to do in regards to keeping America white, uh, manifesting itself in the highest offices in the land, and manifesting itself in official policy from the highest offices in the land, and terrorizing uh, many different groups of people. And I'm also going to publish an article about uh, Cordelia Scaife May, who was one of the wealthiest women in the United States, and she basically uh, dedicated her life to uh, anti-immigration foundations, the anti-immigration cause, funding all of these organizations that were fighting to demonize... uh, the other non-white immigrants and this overlapped with like this weird sort of distorted version of environmentalism uh and population control so anyways the point is is that um i certainly while we have to fight the people on the streets you got to look at the people who are respectable in suits who have a ton of money who are bankrolling these folks they're getting their money from someone you know um so that's another theme of this particular podcast and my reflection that um, I missed the mark on that uh, back then when I was doing the hate project. And I do want to talk about uh, something that uh, I talked with with DK Wilson. Again, he's on two episodes of this podcast, how people of color have a Stockholm syndrome and the idea of assimilating often kind of comes from a Stockholm syndrome. Uh, We internalize white supremacy in a different way even if we know that we're not part of whiteness you know everything around us is uh serving something that we would term like a white american culture um again that's a hollow concept there's no whiteness or white american culture really um it's all a mishmash of a bunch of shit but um there's a face to it and that face is white uh, when we look at our culture around us uh, when we look at like what's normal it's considered white and so there is a Stockholm syndrome of like I don't belong so I gotta now fight harder to belong to these institutions and what have you now um, I bring this up to sort of talk about a recent news story because part of this podcast was to relate my interactions back from 2012, 2013, with these um, sort of fringe individuals to what's happening in the country right now. So recently, in Texas, in Harris County, Texas, um, Sandeep Dalewal, he was the very first Sikh uh, Sheriff's Office deputy in Harris County. Um, He was gunned down in the back of the head during a routine traffic stop. This happened actually on Friday, September 27th. Um, And so basically pulled over a vehicle and it was a routine stop. And then the guy got out and shot him in the back of the head. 
the murderer's name was Robert Solis, and he was a felon with a long history of uh, felony. So a bad guy, probably not safe to have him out on the streets. And um, so basically, um, we don't know quite if this was a hate crime or not, but um, I want to just talk about a couple things. I want to contrast this with uh, the Botham Jean murder by police officer, by Dallas police officer Amber Geiger. So that trial is going on uh, right now, and uh, Amber Geiger took the stand, and she was crying and sobbing about how, oh, I, you know, I wish he had shot me, I was afraid, blah, blah. And you see, like, the body cam photo, the footage as well. And, um, you know, basically, you know, what's happening here is that... um, She's like, I didn't realize I was, I, I didn't realize I was in the wrong place. I was in the wrong place on the body cam footage as well. And so, um, here's why I'm bringing this up. Botham Jean, a guy who had no criminal record whatsoever. Uh, you know, just a really beloved man, 26 years old, African American man. And, um, he was just gunned down. He was sitting in his apartment eating ice cream. A cop, a white cop, walked in there into the wrong fucking place and then uh, just gunned him down. Again, even if you thought you were in your place and you had an intruder, usually you try to disarm the intruder and then you take them in. So I'm contrasting this with uh, this guy, Botham Jean. This cop thought that this was an intruder, did not give him a chance at all and just shot him dead. Whereas, like, Robert Solis, who shot a police officer in the back of the head, is taken in alive without a scratch. So, again, we have this black man with no criminal record. Somebody suspected him of being an intruder. And they decided to play the judge, jury, and executor. Basically, shot him dead. And uh, now she's a white woman crying on a fucking, like, stand. And there's footage of that. And she'll probably get off. I don't know. I hope I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong at the time of this taping. At, at, uh, in the future, I mean. Not this time of this taping. But um, this guy, Robert Solis, again, who shot this cop in the back of the head and fleed the scene and then was caught later, taken in without a scratch. All these white mass shooters, like the El Paso shooter, taken in without a scratch. So this is another example of um, how much just certain people of color in this country, their existence is just criminalized and seen as a threat. And how even people, when they do everything that they're supposed to do, when they aspire, when they assimilate into positions that white America would say are respectable positions, uh, Botham Jean, not having a criminal record, having a good job, being a beacon of inspiration in his church, a positive influence, and Sandeep Dhaliwal becoming a deputy, becoming uh, joining law enforcement because he saw it as a positive uh, role to take, not only in his culture, but for the wider community that he belonged to as well. Um, so we're trained to aspire to these sorts of um, positions, these sorts of accomplishments. They're not always a guarantee that you're going to be okay. They're not always a guarantee of safety for black and brown people. 
you know. Um, a couple more stories happening here. There was an army soldier, another army soldier. Um, we've talked about this in the past as well, but there's a U.S. army soldier who discussed bomb-making techniques and bombing a major American news network headquarters. He also named presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke as a possible target. Um, he was arrested uh, also this past, like not this weekend, but the weekend before actually. And uh, I'm reading this news story from September 23rd, 2019. But apparently this guy, uh, his name is... Jarrett William Smith, he had discussed joining a far-right paramilitary organization in Ukraine back in 2016 before he decided to join the U.S. Army. So, um, these openly ugly people with these openly ugly ideologies have made their way into our law enforcement and military service. I mean, we've talked about this in the past, the Facebook groups of the racist comps and the racist Customs and Border Patrol people. Uh, that's been in the news a lot, and I've talked about it on this show. And um, now recently, the Department of Homeland Security has deemed white supremacy. They've added white supremacy to the list of threats to America. And, um, you know, they basically say this uh, language of the continuing menace of racially based violent extremism, partially white supremacist extremism, is an important affront to our nation the struggle and unity of its diverse population and the core values and all this stuff. Kevin McAleenan has said this. He's the acting Homeland Security. And um, But here's the thing. The Department of Homeland Security oversees Immigrant and Customs Enforcement, ICE, and Customs and Border Patrol. Now, these are two agencies that are completely deputized with terrorizing people of color for real in that they separate families they separate young children and babies from their mothers and put them in separate uh concentration camps and that's what they are anybody who's blanching at that term is a fucking moron and i would advise that you read hitler's first victims before you blanch at that term it actually explains how this stuff grows into a full-blown holocaust it should be required reading for anyone it's called hitler's first victims um i don't remember the author's name but you can google that shit um so anyways um Basically, what difference does it make if you're... Yes, I mean, probably what happened was they had to go after the people who were killing many, many people all at once with a fucking assault rifle. And uh, they couldn't get away with not addressing that at some point because that's something that even respectable racist people have to condemn. In fact, like the respectable like suit and tie racist people come out and say, well, we don't support that at all. That's not what we're about. We're about loving our race. They do it all the fucking time, you know. And um, but that's where we are. You know, it's still a country where in regards to policy, I mean, obviously, let's not I've never gotten into I don't want to say never, but very rarely got into international policy that the U.S. chooses to pursue, which targets uh, other nations that are often colored nations uh, because we want their resources and we don't want to negotiate with them. And um, and also, like, you know, our foreign policy has allowed the growth of refugees that have tried to find a new home in the West. Not because the West is so great, but they need a new fucking home because they don't have one anymore. And so... Um, yeah, so we still are a country that will just be racist. We'll just sort of allow unchecked biases to kill people. But, you know, 
When it comes to saying the right things, we will come out and condemn the right things. So, um, it's like somebody molesting you and, um, you know, complaining about how what an evil person Jeffrey Epstein was. Or if you were being trafficked uh, as an underage minor by Jeffrey Epstein while he was writing a tr- like a check to a human trafficking, uh, anti-human trafficking organization. So, um, I also want to mention this. Um, this episode is very Texas heavy because that is where I grew up. I grew up in Texas and I spent, uh, my formative years there. Uh, apparently, uh, in Texas, Ken Paxton, he's the Texas attorney general. This is a story from September 5th, 2019. Um, he was, uh, apparently receiving pages and pages of racist and violent letters threatening to kill undocumented immigrants over the course of a year. And uh, he didn't do anything. He didn't communicate this threat to the local authorities. Again, this is the Texas Attorney General receiving somebody threatening to kill another group of people, other human beings, basically. And he just decided to not uh, communicate this to uh, law enforcement at all. So um, what's the conclusion on that? Uh, At best... um, the people who should have our backs, who should be protecting this country, are not going to. And the people who want to destroy, who want to really make it a white ethno state and destroy non-whites from this country are getting more and more emboldened. I also realize, like, this show that I'm doing, Paradox of Civility, um, it could have been done. You shift the time frame of this podcast, like I did from 2018 to now, 2019. And I don't know if I started this podcast in 2019 and went through next year or did it the year after or the year after. I don't know how much worse it would be. So um, I wonder, like, if you listen to the Hate Project episodes within these podcast episodes, you might be relating those interactions to um, different things at, at that point if you're listening to this down the road. Um, so... Um, I also want to talk about uh, Draylon Mason. Um, he was one of the victims of the Austin bomber. The Austin bombing that happened on March 12th, 2018. Um, he was killed on March 12th. And uh, this is actually part of a, a slew of package bombs that were left outside of Austin homes. And they were uh, made by a 23 year old named Mark Anthony Condit. And um, he apparently had written a manifesto or written about doing this violence, but he didn't indicate any hate. But he targeted people of color and he targeted Draylon Mason. And um, Draylon Mason was this, you know, very prodigal musician. Um, uh, Is that the right word? Prodigy? Prodigy of a musician. And um, he played his way into a selective Texas music school. And he was also accepted into the Oberlin conservatory of music and then he was killed on march 12th and so um i just want to play uh draylon mason at a playing a concert um he's playing uh the van hall concerto i don't know enough about classical music so um maybe that's (laughs) i'm it's very beautiful i don't know why i'm even commenting on this And I'm going to play that, and I'm going to play that mixed with um, Eddie Gloud on MSNBC. Um, He was somebody who, um, after the El Paso shooting, he offered some insightful uh, commentary on America and how you can't blame this sort of racial hate, this sort of racial violence just on Trump alone. So 
I'm going to end the show here and I'm going to play that clip. And um, obviously, my email is still open. My Twitter handle is still up. So if you ever have any additional uh, commentary or questions or anything you want to say to me, any feedback, uh, please hit me up there. And um, I will talk to you on the next project. Goodbye. You know, America's not unique in its sins as a country. We're not unique in our evils, to be honest with you. Um, I think where we, where we may be singular is our fu- a refusal to acknowledge them. And the legends and myths we tell about our inherent, you know, goodness uh, to hide and cover and conceal so that we can maintain a kind of willful ignorance that protects our innocence. See, the thing is that when we, the Tea Party was happening, we used people were we were saying pundits. Oh, it's just about economic populism. <laughs> it's not about race. <clears throat> when people knew, people knew. Social scientists were already writing that what was driving the Tea Party were anxieties about economic demographic anxiety. shifts, that the country was changing, that they were seeing these racially ambiguous babies on, on Cheerios commercials, that the country wasn't quite feeling like it was a white nation anymore, and people were screaming from the top of their lungs. Yo, this is not just simply economic populism. This is the ugly underbelly of the country. See, the thing is, is this, and I'll say this, and I'll take the hit on it. There are communities that have had to bear the brunt of America confronting, white Americans confronting the danger of their innocence. And it happens every generation. So somehow we have to kind of, oh my God, is this who we are? And just again, another, here's another generation of babies. Think about it, that two-year-old had his bro- bones broken by two parents sh- trying to shield him from being killed. A woman who has been married to this man for as long as I've been on the planet almost, lost her, lost her husband. For what? And so what we know is that the country has been playing politics for a long time on this hatred. We know this. So it's easy for us to place it all on Donald Trump's shoulders. It's easy for us to place Pittsburgh on his shoulders. It's easy for me to place Charlottesville on his shoulders. It's easy for us to place El Paso on his shoulders. This is us. And if we're gonna get past this, we can't blame it on him. He's a manifestation of the ugliness that's in us. I've had the privilege of growing up in a tradition that didn't believe in the myths and the legends because we had to bear the brunt of them. Either we're going to change, Nicole, 
Are we gonna do this again and again? And babies are going to have to grow up without mothers and fathers, uncles and aunts, friends, while we're trying to convince white folk to finally leave behind a history that will maybe, maybe, or embrace a history that might set them free from being white. Finally. What else? Lord help us.